He is risen. Isn't that a glorious thing? I am so thankful for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It makes the entire Christian faith possible. I uh, want to add my word of welcome to that of Pastor Brian and Pastor Ben. And if you're here visiting for the first time, I'm so thankful the Lord brought you our way. And trust as you're with us today that the Lord's word would minister to you. Well, as you can tell, um, I'm a, my voice is a little under the weather today. So they have the mic pumped up pretty high. I'm going to try to keep, uh, keep as low as I can up here. Uh, how many of you are struggling with the pollen this year? Can I see your hands? Yeah. It's just, uh, it just, it really got me. And Friday night, I, uh, I came to the Friday night gathering that we had. By the way, it was phenomenal. And I promised myself I wouldn't talk. And that didn't happen. <clears throat> I broke that promise about 10 minutes in. And uh, so it kind of set me back a little bit for this morning. But I'm so thankful that we can, uh, can be together. And if you'll bear with my voice, I think uh, what we're going to see to, together this morning out of the Word of God will be beneficial to all of us. We're here today to celebrate the most important event in the history of the universe. I mean, it really is. It's the most important event. It's the singular moment in which everything you and I believe and embrace hangs. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as you and I gather here this morning to celebrate that event, we believe that it is a historical reality. But I hope you know that there are many, many people who on this day are attending church, and it may be the first time that they've attended church in a long time. It may be their very first time to ever attend a Christian service like this. And all across the country today, there are people that are gathered around the Word of God like we're doing this morning to try to put some understanding in their mind and in their heart as they sit there and process everything we've been singing and everything we've been praying and everything we've been been reading and, and, and trying to process all of that in a meaningful way. How in the world can a dead person really rise again? Think about how unbelievable that really is. One of the things that God has helped you to do, and we know this from the Scripture, God enlivened your heart, Ephesians chapter 2. He enlightened your mind, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so that you could believe unbelievable things. If we were asking you, or somebody were asking me, to believe the resurrection about any other person, I think all of us would struggle immensely. If somebody were to talk to us about the virgin birth and actually put us on the spot and with full integrity ask us to affirm that statement, we would have a hard time with that if it were anybody other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's my question. How did you and I come to believe that about Jesus? And I think that's the question a lot of people are asking. How is it that Christians believe something that is so unbelievable and so central to their faith. And more importantly, how do the New Testament writers present that? And so I asked Ben to read for us this morning Acts chapter 3. Because in Acts chapter 3, you find a notable miracle taking place in the name of the risen Christ. 
Jesus did miracles His whole life. In fact, in Luke, who's writing Acts, in Luke chapter 5, there is a very similar miracle that Jesus did. He raised a man who couldn't walk. You remember? His friends brought him, and they unroofed the roof, and lowered him down, and Jesus looks at him, and the very first thing he says to that man, as he's laying there at his feet, people are all around Jesus, the crowds are pressing into the little room where he is, people are peering into the doorway there in that place in Capernaum, and Jesus looks at this man, and he says to him, my son, your sins are forgiven. That's a, sort of a stunning thing to say to a man who's crippled. He wasn't coming necessarily to get his sins forgiven. His friends hadn't crawled all the way up on the roof, unroofed the roof, and lowered him down just so Jesus could say to him, your sins are forgiven. But as he said that, there were religious, powerful religious leaders, teachers of the law who looked and saw and heard, and they immediately thought in their hearts, this man is a blasphemer. Because only God can forgive sins. In a very masterful way, Jesus looks at these men and he says to them, let me ask you a question. Knowing what was going on in their heart, he said, let me ask you a question. Which is easier? Which is easier to say? Forgiven sins or take up your bed and walk? And he goes on to say, so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He looks over at this man and he says, take up your bed and walk. And the man rises up and walks out of their midst. Fast forward to the end of Christ's earthly ministry. The resurrection has happened. Fifty days have passed. He has ascended into heaven. And you come to the opening of the, of the new age. The opening of the new era. Messiah's age has dawned. And His appointed messengers have been sent out and commissioned to go to all the nations to make disciples. And one of the very first things that happens is two of these men go to the temple and they encounter a man who hasn't walked since birth. He has been in this condition for more than 40 years. And they raise, him from the, uh, they raise him up from his paralysis. And then Peter preaches the message that we read in chapter 3, verse 11, going all the way down to the end of that chapter. And basically, the heart of the message is this. We did not do anything to raise this man up from his bed. If you think it was us... If you think it was our authority, or if you think it was our sort of piety in in the first century, uh, people who were extremely holy were, were believed to be very close to God and could do things that ordinary people could not do. And Peter, sensing that maybe some people were thinking that, said, no, 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 it wasn't because of our authority, and it wasn't because of our piety. We raised this man in somebody else's name. And the name that we raised him up from that bed, that name is Jesus, and you know that name well. You know that name well because of what you just did. And so as you continue reading, 
you come down to the very end of the, of the chapter, verse 26, God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first to bless each of you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So we have this notable miracle. What was the response to this miracle? We'll look at chapter 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, so you've got every branch of the religious organization in Jerusalem represented here. The captain of the temple was actually the second in command under the high priest. Oftentimes, that individual will be the next high priest. And so they're all there, and they are, verse 2, greatly annoyed, which is Greek for they were ticked. Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word, what? Believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now back in Acts chapter 2, we just read about 3,000. That became believers. And so now by the end of Acts chapter 3, there are 8,000 people whose lives have been radically transformed by the message of the gospel preached in the power of the resurrected Christ. And that's, I think, what I want to talk about this morning. Your life is a testimony to the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is an undeniable piece of evidence. That is exactly where Peter goes in the text we're looking at in Acts chapter 3 and in Acts chapter 4. Because the next morning, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. So now everybody's there. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, who God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which have become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved, or we must be saved. So how does God use a transformed life? Here's a man, 40 years. He goes to the temple every day. There is no hope for healing. That beautiful gate is probably the magnificent bronze gate that everybody who ever entered the temple would pass through, And there were stairs, a colonnade of stairs that would go up to that gate. And he was probably on those stairs begging alms. And one day, out of 40 years, one day, everything changed for him. 
you know, that's what happens to us, isn't it? We live our entire life broken by sin, helpless and hopeless. And one day, one day, something happened. What you heard and what you used to mock and what you didn't believe, all of a sudden, now you do. And this is what this narrative is all about. So I want to do four things with you this morning very quickly, and then I want to ask you to do something in return. Number one, I want you to see the miracle of a changed life. There is a great, there is great power in that. In chapter 4, verse 7, when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? And Peter says, and we read that text together, and points out that this crippled man is standing right next to them in the middle of this crowd, and he has been made whole. This was not a miracle that was done off in a corner somewhere. This was a miracle that was done out in the open before all of Israel. It was a verifiable miracle. We are given very specific information in chapter 3 about this miracle. Uh, Its location, the stairs of the temple, the time of the miracle, the ninth hour. Probably uh, the ninth hour begins at 3 o'clock and goes to 6 o'clock, and that's the time the evening starts to come, and the end of the Jewish day, uh, one day uh, finalizes and a new day begins. And so we have a very specific time uh, frame, a very specific place. We know exactly where this man what was, was located and where he had been located for all of those years by the gate beautiful. And we know who the man was. He was a man who had been born lame and he was well known to the crowds. And so on this day, at this place, at this time, this man was healed. You know, there came a moment like that for you. There came a moment like that for me. It was verifiable. Secondly, it was notable. This is a notable miracle. This was a man born lame, a man who was well known in Jerusalem as the one who begged daily at the temple. In, in uh, Jewish religion in Jesus' time, there were some established pillars that a good Jew would observe. One of those was the Torah. Another was the temple and prayers. And at the time of the evening sacrifice, which would be the ninth hour, righteous Jews would come to the temple. You remember the story of Zacchaeus, or uh, not Zacchaeus, Zechariah, uh, John the Baptist's father praying in the temple, and all the people were waiting outside. This is very similar. Here are people, and they are coming to observe the evening sacrifice and to receive the ironic blessing that comes after the sacrifice. And so they do this daily, and they were well familiar with this man. And they, when they witnessed this miracle, were filled with awe. They were filled with wonder. And then it was a permanent miracle. This wasn't just a temporary cure or a temporary change in this man. This this miracle was a permanent change. And one of the evidences of this is that when they are standing before the council, they point to this man and they say, this man is fully healed. He is completely healed. And so there is no small miracle that has happened. And it all has been done in the name of someone 
who God raised from the dead. And that's the point that Peter is making. This didn't happen because we prayed better than anybody else. This didn't happen because this man happened to know the magic formula to get God to hear him. This happened because God raised His Son from the dead. And it is in the name of that risen Son, our Lord, that this man was healed. And by the way, there's a room full of people here who have experienced the same thing. The reason you are saved, the reason God heard you when you cried out to Him that day, when you repented of your sins and you embraced the gospel, the reason that God heard you was because of the resurrection of His Son. It is in the resurrected Jesus that you have salvation. His cross made the atonement. His dead body suffered the penalty. But when the Holy Spirit, when God raised His Son from the dead, all of that was validated as complete and final. And it is in the resurrected Jesus that you and I are saved. And that brings us to the second thing. There is not just a notable miracle here of a changed life. There is the manifestation that took place in that life. So what happened when this man was healed? Well, if you go back to chapter 3 and look at the miracle itself, you'll see uh, a number of things that are pointed out. There, there is a new physical change in the man, and that's very obvious. He is doing something that he couldn't do before, right? And what he's doing now that he couldn't before is he's walking and he's leaping. In verse 8, And leaping up, he stood, and he began to walk, entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. You say, what is that leaping bit? Well, it's the only time that Luke ever uses this term. It's a very, very unusual term. It's the word you would use if you were out in the woods and you saw a deer bounding across a meadow or leaping into a wood. That's the idea. And the only other time it's used in the Scripture is in the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 35, Isaiah talking about when the Messianic age would come, when Messiah would arrive, the eyes of the blind will be opened. This is Isaiah 35.5. The ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame shall leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And so what do you see here? You see a man who is doing something he could never have done before. And what Luke wants you to connect is that what he is doing is something that Isaiah talked about. This isn't just that he's walking. Through this man and this miracle and these uh, terms that Luke is using, he's wanting to help you understand that the resurrected Jesus, the ascended Jesus, has not stopped working now that he's gone back to heaven. He's still at work. And he's at work through his apostles. He's at work through his people. And he's at work through his church. And this man had a new physical status. But he also had a new spiritual access. Leviticus chapter 20, verses 17 through 20, prohibited a man with any kind of physical deformity 
from entering into the temple. And so this man could come all the way up to the gate, but he could go no further. His entire life, he had been watching people enter a place that was his because he was a Jew, but he had no right to enter. And the next thing you know, he is with the apostles and he is walking and he is bounding into that temple. There is new spiritual access and there is a new emotional condition. There is joyful praise. I mean, the idea here is there is this exuberant joy that is just pouring out of this man because he cannot believe what has just happened to him. I mean, can you imagine, and I know it's hard for us to imagine this, but can you imagine not being able to walk for 40 years? And then all of a sudden you meet somebody and he says one thing to you and the next thing you know, you can do what you've never been able to do before. What would be coming out of your mouth? What would be leaking out of your eyes? I mean, there is this unbridled joy And so that brings me to this application for you and me. Do we feel that way when the resurrected Jesus looked at us and he said, rise up and walk? Your sins are forgiven. Do we have that same joy? Do we have that same exuberance coming out of our life? Personally, I think that got as much attention as him walking. It was not just a a new physical status and a new spiritual access and new emotion, uh, joyful praise. But there was a new relational commitment. He clung, verse 11 of chapter 3, he clung to Peter and John. He was continually with Peter and John, even when they go to prison, and the next day when they're carried in front of the, the Sanhedrin and all the religious leaders, this man is there. Personal transformation, spiritual life, joyful praise, and continual commitment, clinging to the people of God, marked this man. Now, let me ask you, do these things mark us? I mean, you have experienced no small miracle. You remember when Jesus asked in Luke chapter 5, which is harder to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to say to this man, rise up and walk? If, if you understand theologically what he's asking, which of those two answers is the harder one? Which is more difficult to say to this man who's crippled, whose friends have lowered him down? Your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? I didn't ask you which was easier to prove. If I were asking you which is easier to prove, it's this one. But if I'm asking you which is harder, it's this one. Because the only way that this man's sins are going to be forgiven is for the man who is uttering those words to go to a cross and pay a penalty. And now there is this miracle that is connecting those two ideas. You have received an immense gift. You have been made part of an immense miracle when Jesus looked at you. And it could have happened five years ago. It could have happened 40 years ago. It could have happened yesterday. Some of you were uh, experienced this incredible miracle of new life 
when you were four or five in your home. Others of you when you were 18. Some of you more recently. But you all got the same miracle. We all received and experienced the same thing. When Jesus said to us, your sins are forgiven. Do we feel this way? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is intended to bring deep emotion in our heart. It's not just a theological truth to be affirmed. It is, it is a reality that, that makes our reality, our sins being forgiven, possible. And so that brings me to the third thing. What are the means by which a life is changed? When Peter wants the religious leaders in Israel to understand what happened, what does he point to? Well, he points to a historical reality in a man named Jesus who lived and really came from Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth, and that's where he appeared. And so, basically, these men look at those religious leaders, and we're going to find out later that the religious leaders were confounded by these fishermen from Capernaum. And they say, if you want to know what happened, the first thing we want to point out is there is a historical reality involved here. There is a man named Jesus, and he was from Nazareth, and and here is his ministry. He was sinless, and, and he had a powerful message. His message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And by the way, not one single religious leader standing there listening to Peter and John that day would have been ignorant of this. They would have heard this. They were the ones who were so offended by the message. And you know what? There are times, perhaps as an unbeliever, when you can look back and you were absolutely offended at the message of salvation. And those of us that are believers would say, well, what is so offensive about the message of a salvation so wonderful as the one we have? Here it is. You have to admit something. You have to admit that you are a sinner. You have to admit that. You say, well, that's not hard to admit. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. Just ask your mom. She'll tell you. If you're married, ask your wife. She'll make sure you know you're a sinner. We all actually know this, right? We know this. We even have language in our own uh, vernacular that, that points out to this. We say things like, nobody is what? Everybody makes mistakes. And so we don't really have a problem when somebody says you're a sinner. I don't get offended by that. You probably don't get offended by that. But what if we asked it this way? Are you a criminal? Now, if I ask you that question, most of you are going to sit back. If I were really serious, you're going to sit back and say, Pastor Sam, I don't even know why you would think that. I am not a criminal. And and by the way, that's exactly what sin is. Sin is a crime against God. You want to know what's so offensive about the gospel? What is so offensive about the gospel is that in order to embrace the life it gives, you have to admit that you have committed a crime against God as a sinner. That's a very, very difficult thing for anybody, but especially if you're religious. I mean, think about these 
religious leaders, and Jesus, this carpenter come rabbi from the great metropolis of Nazareth. I mean, how many of you have ever heard of Pelzer, South Carolina? Yeah? Anybody live there? I see two hands from Brother Bob. I used to pastor there. Think of Pelzer as the modern-day Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Pelzer besides the Oldenburgs? <laughs> I, I, see, I, I wanted to get you in there, Bob. Uh, you know, when you, when you think of, of Nazareth, it is a town where no great person had ever come except one that everybody forgot about, and his name was Jonah. We've been talking about Jonah on Sunday mornings here. And so here comes this rabbi from Nazareth, and he's got his disciples with him, and they're a bunch of riffraff. They're a bunch of fishermen. And he shows up, and he starts talking to the Pharisees, and then he talks to the Sadducees, and then he talks to the scribes, and he says the same thing to all of them. You need to repent. And that was horrifically offensive. You telling us that we need to repent? Do you not see who we are? Do you not see our robes? Do you not see the, the, the Scripture that we actually bear on our bodies? Do you not see the fastidiousness by which we hold the law of Moses? And you have the audacity to come and tell us that we need to repent. That's offensive. And you know when somebody came to you and said, you need to repent. You need to ask God to forgive you. You need to turn away from your sins. It is much harder to do when you are a religious person. Because you think that your religion draws you closer to God. Look at all the things that I do. Look at all the times I go to church. Look, I've been baptized. I've got all these other things that are going on. And surely these count with God. And, and, and Jesus cuts all the way through that. You go to the temple every day. You offer sacrifices. You pay tithes on everything. You do even the oral Torah of Moses that was handed down for generations. You wear it in your clothing. You wear it on your bodies. But it's not enough. It doesn't count with God. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded of that. There is no salvation without repentance. There has to come a moment when you repent. Now, repentance may not be the word that comes out of your mouth. I understand that. But there has to be a turning away and a recognition that you are a sinner before God. There is a historical reality, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, then there is a theological atrocity. Verse 10, let it be known to all of you. Now we're in chapter 4. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel but that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, here's the atrocity, who you crucified. Every Jewish religious leader 50 days earlier had been a part of this, except one. Of all the religious leadership in Jerusalem, there was only one man who took issue with what the men that 
Peter is talking to did when it came to Jesus. And you know him as Joseph of Arimathea. But every other religious leader consented. I mean, the Pharisees and the Sadducees never got along. But on this, they united. They came together on this one point. We have got to do something about this rabbi from Nazareth who's doing all these miracles and who's calling us whitewashed sepulchers. This man has the ear and the eye of the nation, and he is telling them that we are a brood of vipers. And he has the audacity to look at us and tell us we need to repent. And we need to be forgiven. And so they came together, and they did an unthinkable thing. They crucified their own Messiah. And all along the way, God orchestrated events to give them an off-ramp. you remember the biggest one? When Pilate comes out, and he offers them a choice between Jesus and Barabbas. And they all say, we want Barabbas. Let his blood be on our head. That's an incredible thing. There's a theological atrocity, and then there is divine affirmation. You crucified him. That's what you did. But let me tell you what God did. God validated him. God raised him up from the dead. And here's the application to all of this. It is by him that this man is standing in your midst made whole. And by the way, that's your testimony this morning. You know why you're made whole spiritually this morning? By the same man who made this lame man whole. That's who made you whole. Well, what is the message of a changed life to people like these religious Pharisees? And you can see that in verses 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. This stone is the one that has become the chief cornerstone. And there is no salvation anywhere else. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Here are these religious people who have been praying and have been living and have been teaching and have been longing for God to send them a Messiah. And when he showed up, they didn't recognize him. Even when he did the very specific kinds of miracles that the law they studied and taught and memorized said Messiah would do when he came. So I'm going to give you a theory that I have, and and you're not bound to my theories. This is my opinion. And I don't give many of these from the pulpit, so I want you to make sure you know this is my opinion. I don't think that these religious leaders rejected Jesus because they didn't want Him to be their Messiah. I think they rejected Jesus because they could not accept the fact that He would call them to repentance in front of the whole nation. And when that language started happening to them. And then he started hanging out with the undesirables like Zacchaeus. People that they had been calling unclean. People that they had distanced themselves. So Jesus did everything the law said. Jesus kept the law perfectly, but he didn't do everything they said. 
He did everything Moses commanded, but he certainly didn't do very much of what they commanded. And all of a sudden, you have these people, and they're beginning to realize, if we actually embrace the the reality that he might be the Messiah, we're going to have to do some really big repenting in front of the whole nation. And repentance isn't just hard. Repentance is impossible until God grants it to you. And that's what I think we're seeing here. There is an accusation. You rejected the one God sent. And the implication of that is, there isn't another one coming. You rejected the one God sent, thinking that there's another one coming. There isn't another one coming. This one that you rejected is coming back. And when he comes back, the entire nation that you've led astray is going to recognize that's who he really is. And, and there is this incredible invitation. Can you imagine? Here's Peter, a fisherman, and he's standing in front of the most learned and most significant and most important people in the city. And he says to them, there is salvation in no other name. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's actually calling these men to salvation. And I guess, you know, when I think about this, there is a point in every single person's life where you have to get there. You know, some of us grew up in very religious backgrounds. We've been going to church nine months before we were born. Right? You say, how long have you been going to church? Uh, My entire life plus nine months. I don't know where, where I just was carried there. I didn't have to worry about anything. Um, you know, we, we've been doing this stuff. We, we grew up in a Christian home. We went to Christian camps. We, we, we went to Christian school, some of us. We were homeschooled, some of us. And it's very easy to just slip into this sort of Christianized bubble and, and not realize that we are in as much need of salvation as the person who never heard at all. We are saved by the same name. We are saved from the same sin, and we have to do the same thing. We have to repent, and we have to believe. And when God grants us repentance, and God enables our faith, and we call on the name of Jesus, you know what He does? He saves us. And then He sanctifies us, and that's where many of you are this morning. I... um, I want to end uh, with, a, with a little clip that I uh, put into the sermon this morning because it actually says better what I want to say. Um, how many of you have heard of Pastor Alistair Begg? Have you heard of him? Um, I got to know him some time ago, and so I follow his ministry a little bit. And this clip probably summarizes the gospel better than any clip I could think of. And so I want you to hear it. And then I'm going to come back up and we're going to pray together. And I want to ask you to do something after the clip. The preaching of the cross. Without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So that to go to the old... uh, Fort Lauderdale question, 
If you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. Oh, what an immense, I can't, I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were, you, were, you, were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You'd never been in a Bible study. You'd never got baptized. You, never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and, yet, and yet, you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, we, uh, did you, <laughs> excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor, Ranger. So we have just a few questions for you. First of all. Are you are you are you are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? Guys, <laughs> I've never heard of it in my life. And and what about? Let's just go to the doctrine of scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, "On on what basis are you here?" And he said, "The man on the middle cross said, I can come.' <laughs> now, now." That's the, that is the only answer. That is the only answer. And if I don't preach the gospel to myself all day and every day, then I will find myself beginning to trust myself, trust my experience, which is part of my fallenness as a man. If I take my eyes off the cross, I can then give only lip service to its efficacy while at the same time living as if my salvation depends upon me. And as soon as you go there, it will lead you either to abject despair or a horrible kind of arrogance. And it is only the cross of Christ that deals both with the dreadful depths of despair and the pretentious arrogance of the pride of man that says, you know, I can figure this out and I'm doing wonderfully well. No, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God that just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's why Luther says most of your Christian life is outside of you in this sense. That we know that we're not saved by good works. We're not saved as a result of our professions. But we're saved as a result of what Christ has achieved. Let me ask you to bow your heads very quietly this morning as we contemplate the miracle in Acts 3 and 4. And I guess the question I have for you and you should have for me is this. Have you talked to the man on the middle cross about your sins? That's what the thief did, actually. He looks at the other thief on the cross and he says, well, you deserve to be here. 
We know we've done. We know exactly why we're here. And this is the appropriate penalty for what we've done. We're here appropriately, but this man has committed no sin. And he looked at the man on the middle cross. And in his own words, he said, can I come? Can I come? Would you remember me? And that's what every single person in this room has to do. Maybe you are here and you've been trusting in something other than Jesus. And maybe you've never even thought about the fact that you might not be a Christian. Because you prayed a prayer. Or some other work that you did. And you just never said to the Lord, Lord, I want to come. Would you let me in? I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve hell. I don't know how to clean this mess up. I don't have the strength in my own power. I've gone to every program there is. I've tried everything. But Lord, if You'll have me, if You will forgive me, and if You will cleanse me, and You will help me, I want to be Your disciple. I want to be with You. And when you get to heaven, it's because Jesus said you could come. And so I want to put that to you this morning. Have you had that conversation with Jesus? And if not, I want to give you an opportunity to have that conversation now. In your own heart. Where you just cry out to Jesus on the day that we celebrate His resurrection and you say to Him, thank you for what you did. Thank you for going for that, to that cross. Thank you for, for taking my place. I deserve to be there with those two thieves. And I'm going to admit it, I, I deserved that execution because of my crimes against God and against you. My sins are before me. And, and God, I need you to forgive my sins. I don't have any currency to buy the kind of righteousness that Moses demands. I just need you to give me the righteousness that you earned for me. And I want eternal life. I I repent of my sins. I reject my sins. I turn from them. And Lord, I'm going to need your help or I'll go back to them. But this morning I repent and I believe. And I want to be wherever you are for eternity. I want to be there. Heaven is not about the gold streets. It's just not about the beautiful cities. It's not about all of the things we often talk about. Heaven is about being with Jesus. And if there's something that you like more about heaven, you haven't quite caught it yet. Would you say to the Lord, Lord, forgive me. Save me. Cleanse me. Help me. Maybe you're here this morning and you did that and you're, you're convinced your soul bears witness to that, that you really are a believer. But you would say to the Lord, Lord, I, I have strayed very far away from these truths. And I need to come back today. You've forgiven me and you've saved me. Would you continue to cleanse me? Would you continue to sanctify me? Would you do that? For me today, Lord.
God hears the prayers of tired, hurting, sinning people. That's the point of this miracle. What this man could not do in his own strength, no matter how many times he tried, he was able to do when Jesus got involved. And that will happen in my life and that will happen in yours. Lord, we give you great praise and we thank you for the glory of the resurrection. But not just for what happened to you, but what happened to us because of that resurrection. Lord, we want to live in the grace of that resurrection. Lord, we want to be transformed by the power of that resurrection. We want our lives to be a living demonstration of the truth of that resurrection. And Lord, we are so grateful that from your cross, you did everything that was necessary so that you could say to us, you will be with me in paradise. And we thank you for that, and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.